Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast, Issues under the Final Section 199A Regulations, held on February 12, 2019. The panelists for the webcast were George Manusos, a partner in PwC's Federal Tax Services Group, Adam Fierstein, a partner in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and the firm's National Real Estate Tax Technical Leader, Michael Hosworth, a director in the Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and Sherry Foreman, a partner in PwC's Private Company Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the Trader Business Determination Rules and the UBIA Rules. Have a listen. Um, Sherry, let's go to you. We've talked about um, having to identify trades or businesses. How do we actually go about determining what is a trader business? I think that's one of the key points here for 199 Cafe. So you can help walk us through the indicia of how I might make that determination. Sure, sure. And given that a lot of people answered they haven't made that determination yet, that's appropriate. So I think Mike discussed some of the reasons why this is important, um, specifically as it relates to non-SSTB activity, making sure that you can separate that from your SSTB activity. I think that'll be important thinking through whether you have any of that activity and and whether or not you can substantiate those activities being separate. Um, The other area that we've been kicking around and we'll talk about a little bit more in detail is when you have disregarded entities that have foreign activity, does it matter from a separation of trades or business perspective? So a couple areas where we think it may be important to consider this separation. Um, There was a lot of commentary uh, given in terms of standards in providing some safe harbors in terms of how these this determination is done. It was requested to use 446 as a definition of what a trader business is. Um, that was actually declined, so, so the um, final regulations did not adopt that. Reason being, they thought those regulations were too broad and applied in different circumstances. So for 199 Cap A, for instance, you, do, you can be passive and still qualify and have a separate trader business. So they did not adopt those rules. Um, But there are some suggestions in terms of what things are necessary. So activities need to have a complete and separable set of books and records. So there is a requirement that you do track that activity separately. Um, Also, an indicator of whether or not you have separate trader businesses is whether or not you use separate methods of accounting. Um, And and there was some commentary that if you do that, though, in a way that shifts profits not, not clearly reflecting income, that would not help in terms of being able to separate those trades or businesses. So methods of accounting would be reflective of, of a separate trade or business, but you need to do it in a way that's accurate and, and depicts that activity. Um, there, was a, there was some commentary around, uh, or an example specific to a veterinary, veterinary service, um, and, and basically gave some parameters in terms of whether um, you have a veterinary service and then dog food sales and how you would separate those. So what would you need to look at to determine those were two separate trader businesses and you could separate those activities? So some of the factors they named, again, were the maintenance of separate books and records, um, separate invoicing. So were invoices separated for those two services or were they combined? Um, how employees acted with respect to those services. Were there separate employees in both of those businesses that you could you could look to? And then lastly, um, that you consistently traded those as separate trades or businesses. So for other provisions in the code, were those reflected as separate trades or businesses? Those were all considerations that were mentioned in terms of things that would help you um, and help substantiate the fact that you had two separate trades or businesses. 
Great. Thank you, Sherry. I think it's um, that example is probably a good roadmap for folks mm -hmm. that want to create separate trades or businesses. We don't have any specific bright line rules. Those are among the various factors that one would take into account, at least for Section 446 purposes, in determining whether an entity can have its own methods of accounting. But I would personally feel comfortable if a company came to us and said that they have these four indicia because they were treated as separate trades or businesses in this example. I think it'd probably be safe if you can support that as being able to support that you've got a separate trade or business in real life. Yeah. Um, the other important point here is that we had a change. When the final regulations were issued, there were corrections made a couple days later. That change on the second bullet there, it's originally it said you must have a complete and separate set of books and records. They changed separate to separable, which is the 446 standard. So, for example, the way I interpret that to mean is that if we were all activities in one legal entity, if we had one cash account for all four of us, I don't think you can separate that or that's not separable into whose cash is whose. Whereas if we had one trial balance with four general ledger accounts for cash for each of us, it might be one balance sheet, but we can separate our cash very easily because we have separate banks bank accounts. So just things to consider. It doesn't have to be separate right now, but they do have to be easily separable. All right, now that we've done the trade or business determination, next step would be to do whether or not your activities qualify. So Mike, you wanna take us through some of the uh, SSTB rules and changes? Sure, George. In the final regulations, there were some additional clarifications around what constitutes an SSTB. Um, those were specific to a number of uh, taxpayers that had written into Treasury or gone to speak to Treasury, and there were some clarifications provided with respect to healthcare, consulting, financial services, and dealing in securities or commodities. Um, there was also a clarification regarding specified service trader business, uh, businesses within a publicly traded partnership, and the clarification says that if the PTP generates SSTB income, it, it doesn't somehow get cleansed or qualify, although for the most part, most PTPs don't generate specified service trader business income. Um, and then I guess the other the other point that a lot of taxpayers had asked for further guidance or changes on uh, was with respect to the de minimis rule. And just to remind people of the way the de minimis rule works, um, the de minimis rule says if you have gross receipts from a trader business that are $25 million or less, uh, then less than 10% of your, it, uh, of your um, gross receipts can come from specified service trades or businesses without causing the whole trader business to be treated as an SSTB. But that 10% limit in that case is a cliff, right? If you get um, to 10% or above, then the whole thing is a specified service trader business. And that threshold changes when the size of the business exceeds $25 million in gross receipts. It drops from 10 down to five. But that de minimis rule, which folks had asked for an expansion of, they obviously wanted that threshold to be larger than the 10% or larger than the 5%, remained unchanged. And that's yet again another reason why it is important um, to know where that line is between separate trades or businesses. If that specified service income within the larger trade or business constitutes a separate trade or business, then it doesn't taint the whole thing and the, the otherwise qualifying income that's there. Yep, that 5% is a very, very low cliff. I'm a $100 million business. I basically have an allowance of 5 million of bad SSTB income. If I exceed that, the entire trade or business, that's a huge shock for people, right? If I've got only 6% of SSTB income, 
the entire trade of business is tainted. That's when we go back to the drawing board and now we try and separate these into two different trades of businesses, whether I can do it now factually or I structure into it. There was, though, as I mentioned earlier, some good news on the specified service trader business front, and that was the liberalization of what we referred to as the 50-80 rule and the incidental rule that were in the proposed regulations. And, and just to refresh, the 50-80 the rule said that if you have a non-specified service trader business that is commonly under common control with um, a specified service trader business, uh, so otherwise qualifying and specified service trader business under common control, and that otherwise qualifying trader business is providing 80% or more of its property or services to the specified service trader business, then the entire otherwise qualifying business was going to be treated uh, as a specified service trader business. So um, this was the law firm example in the proposed regulations where the law firm had separated out uh, its, its real estate holding entity and its back office, and they were charging the back office and the rent for the building back to the law firm entity. And the service said, no, you can't generate qualifying income this way. Um, and it seemed a particularly harsh rule for someone who's engaged in a specified service trader business and, for example, owned a building and maybe leased 15% of that building or a couple of floors in the building to an unrelated third party that otherwise would have been good uh, qualified business income. In the final regulations, the service has said, we're only going to treat a specified service income that income that comes from, release, or from, from leasing in that case to the party that's under common control, the specified service trader business under common control, anything that you're getting from a third party that would otherwise be good 199 cap A income, we'll treat that as good 199 cap A income. So that's one of the two liberalizations. The other um, was with respect to the incidental rule. The incidental rule, um, was a rule that I think you can think of this rule as, as being there for the purpose of discouraging specified service trades or businesses from maybe identifying small, uh, possibly separate trades or businesses um, that were generating otherwise qualifying income and claiming the benefit of the deduction with respect to that otherwise qualifying income. The proposed regulation said that unless that separate otherwise qualifying trader business that was under common control with a specified service trader business had gross receipts that were at least 5% of the total, um, then that separate otherwise qualifying business was merely incidental to the specified service trader business and it didn't generate good qualifying business income. They've gotten rid of that rule entirely. So what that means if you think of it in terms of the example that was in the proposed regulations, the example in the proposed regulations dealt with a dermatologist's office. The dermatologist provides specified services, medical services, um, and at the same time within the same entity ran uh, a separate trader business that sold skincare products. And the example in the proposed regulations said, well, the, the skincare product sales didn't generate more than 5% of the gross receipts of the total dermatology trader business. Um, so even though it was a separate trader business, uh, we're going to treat it as a specified service trader business. Um, under the final regs, that small sliver of otherwise good income that's in a separate, otherwise qualifying trader business is now going to be good income. So 
clients who may have thought, well, I'm in a specified service trader business, I, I'm not going to find uh, uh, much good qualifying income within my business or within my structure, even if it is a separate trader business, it's not going to reach that 5% threshold. Um, now they may want to think again about looking. Yeah. Yeah. So although we didn't get our 5 and 10% caps lifted, we did have some relief on the de minimis rules, which again, mm -hmm. demonstrates that folks may want to carve things up into separate trades or businesses because now effectively anything you do will be able to qualify absent the big macro 5% rule. Mm -hmm. All right, Mike, you want to update us a little bit on guaranteed payments? We had some movement in the regulations about the treatment of guaranteed payments, or clarifications, I should say. Yeah, the, the rule in the final regulation with respect to guaranteed payments uh, broadens the rule that's in the statute to some extent. So the statute made it clear that guaranteed payments for services were not going to be treated as qualified business income. And that's consistent with the rule that says if you're receiving wages uh, or you're in the trader business of being an employee, you're not going to benefit from this deduction. So similarly, uh, if you're a partner in a partnership and you're receiving a guaranteed payment for your services, uh, the concept in the statute was, well, that is wage-like enough that you shouldn't be able to claim the 20% deduction with respect to that income. Um, the statute didn't say anything about guaranteed payments for the use of capital that a, a partnership would pay to partners, um, but the regulations expanded this concept to lump in guaranteed payments for the use of capital, and I think the reasoning was a little bit different. The reasoning there was that um, the benefit was not meant to apply to investment income and guaranteed payments for the use of capital are like interest in many ways and like interest in ways uh, that are close enough to make sure that um, we don't want to include them as qualified business income. So guaranteed payments for the use of capital don't get the benefit either. Um, I, I think this just highlights that some of the distinctions that we thought about before 199A have taken on uh, renewed importance. Um, if you've got a guaranteed payment for the use of capital now, it's not going to qualify for the 199A benefit. For those following the 163J regulations or proposed regulations, uh, it's also going to be treated as interest. Um, so it has us thinking again about uh, positions that people have taken with regard to guaranteed payments. Yeah, well, one of the things that I thought was interesting in, in the final regulations, sort of following up on that, treating it like interest, is they also said, well, since sometimes you can have a trade of business of, of lending or being a bank, effectively, if you do get guaranteed payment income and that is part of your trade or business, perhaps it can be good on that end. Not so much from the the part from the partnerships activity, but you might. They, but they also said we doubt. You know, we we think it's unlikely, but you can still maybe take That's that right. position if you're in the business of, of making um, those types of, of investments. Um, Sherry, one thing I want to follow up with you is you had mentioned that when you're doing separate trades or businesses, you have to take consistency into account. Could you just expand on that a little bit? What you meant by consistency of trades or business across code sections? Right. So, so there are other code sections um, that I can think about, 163J, methods of accounting, where you're making determinations on trader businesses. So you're looking there to, to determine whether or not you have separate trader businesses. I think the, the requirement here is you're going to have to look across those provisions and those applications and make sure you're applying them consistently. Gotcha. I, I, may, I may not want separate trades or businesses for 163J purposes, mm -hmm. so be careful if you're carving yourself up for 199 Cap A purposes, you're likely carving yourself up for that purpose as well. Yeah, Excellent point. And one of the interesting things I think about tax reform in general, and particularly with 199A and 163J, is while this was an issue for accounting methods that, that people 
looked at whether they had a separate trader business, it now just takes on much greater importance. And, and the lines of how of you know it's it's really going to be in some ways de novo. Where does one business end and another begin is going to be something that people haven't given a lot of thought to before and now re really have to. Absolutely. All right, Adam, let me hand it off to you to go over our UBIA uh, rules. Adam, let me hand it over to you to go over the uh, UBIA rules. Sure. So, so unadjusted basis, and again, just, just by way of background, you can uh, support your, to the extent you want to take a 20% deduction and you're above the income thresholds, you have to support it with either W-2 wages or unadjusted basis. And so having more unadjusted basis is generally a good thing. There were some rules in the proposed regs that uh, people didn't think was quite right and they made some comments and, and the IRS and Treasury, to their credit, made changes that I think most people welcomed and think make a lot more sense given the context. So one of those related to non-recognition um, transactions. And so just taking a step back on adjusted basis is basically what you pay for an asset. It, it disappears after a certain period of time, but it doesn't get depreciated. So if I bought a building and I had unadjusted basis of a thousand in the building, cheap building, but I had an unadjusted basis of a thousand, 20 years later, even though I may have depreciated it down to 200, the unadjusted basis is still a thousand. So that's the concept of unadjusted basis. What the rules said generally with non-recognition transactions in the proposed rules was if I engage in a non-recognition transaction and contribute that building, let's say, to a partnership, all of a sudden the unadjusted basis goes down to 200 because that's the basis at the time the partnership acquired it. Uh, people made comments on that, and the final rule is different. It basically says, no, that 1,000 generally carries over. So that was one a key change with unadjusted basis. Another just relates to the allocation rules, and here I'd say it was more of a simplification than anything. Whereas before, once you have unadjusted basis in a partnership, the rule under the proposed regs was that you'd look to see how gain would be allocated for the asset under 704B and 704C if there was a hypothetical sale. Uh, that's not uh, that's not the methodology that was used in the final regs because applying 704 B and C could be really complicated. And basically, it's just how would you allocate depreciation under 704 B on the last day of the taxable year? So you'd look at that number, and that's, a, I think, a much simpler way. It's not simple, but it's definitely easier um, compared to, to what was in the proposed rule. Another change that's related for partnerships is what happens with 743B adjustments. And basically, for those that don't know, if someone goes out and buys a partnership interest, and let's say the basis of the assets in the partnership was 20, and the unadjusted basis was 20, um, we'll just say the, the unadjusted basis was 20 at the time um, that I purchased it, and the adjusted basis was 2. Now I purchase an interest, and all of a sudden, I've now paid um, 100. And so now there's a 743B adjustment of 80. Under the proposed regs, I'd only get really unadjusted basis of 20. Uh, I wouldn't get the credit really for that purchase I just made of 80 and that 743 adjustment that's there. But now I'll effectively get the benefit of that full $100 purchase price with respect to that asset. And I'll have a full unadjusted basis of 100. I'll warn people that this rule was corrected um, so if you're looking at the original version of the proposed regs and um, of the final regs and trying to work through it, you will not get to the right answer when you work through the calculations. But but they did correct it shortly thereafter. And if you look at the correction, um, it sort of works the way it should. Similar to the, the uh, non-recognition rules for 1031s, 
Um, that's another area where they made some changes. Um, and so, and, and it's similar to the non-recognition rules. Before, if I had an asset that I bought for 1,000, depreciated it down to 200, my unadjusted basis was still 1,000. The original 1031 rules uh, with respect to unadjusted basis said, when I take my property and I exchange it for another like-kind property, my unadjusted basis goes down to 200. They change that and in a similar way say, no, your unadjusted basis should effectively stay 1,000 as though you hadn't really exchanged anything at all. And then they, they obviously they have some rules that make sense with respect to if you get cash in connection with the 1031, then that will reduce your unadjusted basis. If you put additional cash in in connection with the 1031, that will generate more unadjusted basis. So again, a rule that at the end of the day seems much more in line with, with appropriate tax policy than was in the proposed regs. Now, lots of complexity with the UBIA, but it is going to be an important number for folks um, because it's one of the limitations. I know a lot of folks have considered, if I have enough wages, I'm not going to bother with the UBIA count computation. As Michael pointed out a little bit, if you don't report a number out, it's going to be zero. So a lot of folks are advised to send out every piece of information accurately so you don't have to go back to the drawing board later on. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you.